At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Go ahead and have a seat. It's so great to see all of you this morning. My name again is Steve Zarelli. I'm one of the pastors here at Woodside and so thankful to be bringing the word of God to you today. Please, in your Bibles, turn to Matthew 24, if you would, joining us online or here, of course, in the room. Uh, Get a pen out today. We're going to dive back into this text. I'm really excited about that. But let me begin this way. C.S. Lewis said it best. Isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different? I used to say how much I hated Brussels sprouts. You can dig up sermons where I talked about how much my wife loves them and how much I am repulsed by them, especially their smell. But a funny thing happened, time has proven me a liar, and now I love them, especially when they're salted and drizzled with oil and roasted and burnt and covered with cheese and bacon. They're fantastic. I used to say how much I hated watching golf. The broadcast is usually full of fake bird chirping sounds taken straight from my daughter's noisemaker machine. And yet, uh, the peace and the, the, the pace, the tranquility, the tone, the slow, the quiet, the reflective nature of the broadcast, it bore me to death. But a funny thing happened. Time has proven me a liar once again. Now I will tell you that I love it, even with the fake bird effects, and especially when it's springtime at Augusta National with the Masters. The point is, my word is not always reliable. It changes, and so does yours. Katie and I are now at that stage of life where we get a smirk, we get to smile. I I surpassed the 40-year mark last year, uh, actually a couple years ago now. I'll be 42 this year. So that means our kids are starting to get a bit older. And we're at that phase where we get to smile and just enjoy the moment whenever young, newer parents say that as they're looking at their two or three or four or five-year-old, and they're like, you know what? It's really so hard right now. I can't wait till my child gets a little bit older because it's going to be easier. And then we get to look at each other and be like, yep, you're probably right. You're probably right. The terrible twos are much harder than when your child is the size of an adult, as a master of arts in deception and manipulation, as a PhD in technology and sarcasm, and now has the ability to criticize both our parenting and, in my case, my preaching. It's much easier. Isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different? And yet I'm not sure if it's funny, though, how unreliable life is, how unreliable we all are. Funny might not be the best adjective here. A better word might be unnerving or unsettling or disconcerting or alarming or confusing. Every soul in truth longs for security. Every soul longs for stability, for reliability, and every soul has to work through the reality that these things are things the earth cannot supply. 
The earth cannot supply these things. You can't get reliability here. It's discontinued. It's sold out. It's been out of stock since Genesis 3. It's gone. But Lewis also said, the fact that our hearts yearn for something, in this case security and reliability, that the earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. The Christian story tells us that there is only one sure place, there is only one sure place to find what every single one of our souls needs. And that is ultimately in faith. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in the world, not faith in any God, but faith in the only God who sits right now enthroned in heaven. The God who is immutable, that means he is unable to change. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who is good, great, glorious, and gracious, who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. Faith in the God who gave us his word, and because it is his word, it is infallible. That means it's wholly true in everything that it communicates. It is inerrant. It is authoritative, sufficient, determinative. Faith in the God who gave us his son. And that's what sets our faith apart. It rests on the life, death, and resurrection of a single person, a God-man, Jesus Christ. That is our claim. So when we have questions, when we are confused, when we are unsettled by an ever-changing, unreliable landscape, we need to activate our faith by relying on Jesus' unchanging word. That's our main point really today, to rely on Jesus' unchanging word. Some of you came in this room this morning, some of you are joining online today, and you're asking the question, what now? What do I do now? Everything is different. What do we do now? Now, perhaps the situation changed. Perhaps you received some news. Perhaps there was some relationship that broke down. Whatever it might be, you're asking that question, what do I do now? It seems like everything's different. We must rely on Jesus' unchanging word. Now, I gave you the answer before the explanation. So let's do a little exposition so we can see it for ourselves. So I hope you're in Matthew 24. You made your way there. Grab a pen, grab your notes. We've been learning from Jesus how to live today in light of the future. Let me recap where we've been these last couple weeks. This scene that we're in right here takes place in Jerusalem. It's two days before the crucifixion of Christ. This is Jesus' final teaching the fifth of five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew, and he's preparing his disciples for things they would have never anticipated and they didn't even have categories for. Uh, This whole week would have been like an anxiety-inducing bad dream to them. At the beginning of Passion Week, of course, as Jesus is riding in on a colt, people are shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. And after woes, and after warnings, and after Jesus confronting the national leaders of his day, now they're starting to think, man, this is a bad dream. This is not going the way we anticipated. And so Jesus then lays down this statement. We've looked at it the last few weeks as they're walking by this magnificent temple that was constructed in Jerusalem. And he says, do you see all these stones? Do you see these temple buildings? I tell you, there will not be one stone left on another that will not be thrown down. And they're thinking he's reading from the wrong script. This isn't how the movie's supposed to go. 
This isn't what's supposed to happen next. But even though it didn't fit their expectations, one thing I will give the disciples certainly credit for here is they trusted his word. They relied upon his word, and we know they trusted his word because they asked questions as if the thing he was saying were, in fact, going to happen. So they asked two questions. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're thinking that if something this horrific is going to happen to the temple and the people in Jerusalem, then it must happen at the same time that he returns in power at the end of the age. So Jesus says, no, these are different events. And he corrects their misunderstanding throughout the rest of this particular chapter of scripture, this discourse. He makes the point that it will seem like the world is going through birth pains. He says it's going to feel like rhythmic contractions. There will be seasons of intense distress And then what seems like a little relief and then intense distress, eventually there is a transition, which is the most intense phase, or so I'm told. And then eventually there's delivery and then new life. And so if you've been following in this series, we've looked at verses 4 through 28, and they explain that we are in the phase of God's plan called the church age. It started when Jesus ascended, and it will end when he returns. Yeah, had a second coming. So we're in this season called the church age. And during this time, Jesus says there will be seasons of distress. False teachers, he said, will come claiming Christ. When nations rise up against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms, there will be all kinds of uh, atrocities that happen, national disasters that happen. And all this distress will mean trouble for his followers. He says some of you will be martyred. Some of you will be persecuted. The things that are coming your way from the world that hated me that will also hate you are going to be difficult. That is what will happen in the days ahead. But, but in the midst of all of that, at the same time, he says, the good news is that the gospel will be proclaimed. That lives will be changed through faith in Christ and God will give complete forgiveness and the promise of eternal salvation to all who believe. So in the midst of this evil age, in the midst of this present church age, there's the seeds being birthed of God's family, the seeds being birthed of God's kingdom. Now maybe you're tempted to think that in order to share the gospel, the conditions need to be perfect. Maybe you've been following Jesus for some time and you're like, yeah, I'm just waiting for that moment. I'm waiting for that moment when I'm sipping lattes with a great friend who begins asking questions directly about Jesus Christ. When it's just laid out for you, that's simply. And if you're waiting for perfect conditions, you need to understand there is no such thing as perfect conditions in an imperfect world. It will not come. It will not happen. It's like a guy who tells you he's waiting for just the right time to propose, the perfect moment, even though you've been in a relationship with him for years. Let me warn you now, get out while you can. The point is, it doesn't matter where in the world or when in the world you preach Jesus. The world will never be ready. We will always find two things taking place really at the same time. We will always find obstacle and reception. There will be obstacles to sharing our faith. There will be reception to the gospel. We give way too much energy, our mental energy, thinking about the obstacles. I've been at this church for quite some time, and if I'm honest with you, I've had so many discussions with brothers and sisters in the faith whose lives have been transformed by this great news 
And they've gone through years of study, years of scripture meditation, years of classes. And then when I talk to them and say, what have you done with all that knowledge? What have you done with all that faith? They haven't shared it. They haven't made a disciple. They haven't shared this news with others. And that's the, that's the whole reason why we're here. That's our commission. And yet we let these obstacles get in our way. Well, my, my friends are confused about gender or our government is passing immoral laws or my friends are successful and don't think they need a savior. Our schools and universities deny creation. It's harder in this culture than it used to be. Don't spend so much time thinking about all the things that need to line up in order for you to begin talking more openly about Jesus. You are planted right where God intended to plant you. And he calls you to proclaim the gospel here, where you are, where he has you, in this community, in this family, in this context, in this moment, in this neighborhood, regardless of the obstacles, we must rely on the words of Christ. We must move our mission forward. And so when Jesus says, yes, some will receive in the midst of these times of distress, we receive it. We receive it, we believe it, we move. Now back to the text in verses four through 28, Jesus also makes this point, especially in verses 15 through 21, we looked at that last time, that Israel is judged. The devastation of Jerusalem in AD 70 was horrific. And even though the whole world heard about it, Jesus said it wouldn't be the end of the age. That's what the disciples thought. But he corrects them and says, when these things happen, it's God's wrath being poured out over Israel through Rome for their rejection of Christ as the Messiah. Now we'll pick up in verse 29 where Jesus focuses on the second part of their question. Well, what about his return? What about the end of the age? Verse 21 through 31. Immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I've said this before about this particular text that we're in. We need to come to this text humbly and graciously. And so as I start to talk through this, we're just going to nerd out for a few minutes. Is that all right? We just kind of need to nerd out so we can understand what's actually happening in these scriptures because there's a lot going on here. There's several ways that pastors and interpreters understand this section of scripture. Now let's not make the mistake of thinking that since there's disagreement with interpretation, that that must mean that God's word is less trustworthy or accessible. That's just not true. The opinions have to do with the timing of events, nothing to do with the content of the gospel. And so some pastors, some interpreters, say that everything that we're reading here happened in the past. Others say that everything we're reading here will happen in the future. And some say there's what's called a dual fulfillment, that Jesus was talking about events that would happen shortly after he ascended, and also about events that would happen at the end of the church age. That's what I tend to think. 
when he returns a second time. So often when we're reading about prophetic utterances within the Old Testament, there is an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. That tends to be my opinion when we come here. So I would agree with those who think that verses 4 through 28 describe this entire church age from his ascension to his return. And for me, verses 15 through 21 specifically refer to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and the city, the people within it. So when we get to verse 29, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, I take those days to mean this entire church age as Jesus just described. In other words, when history comes to an end, here are the things he says will happen. He says the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now this is called apocalyptic language, apocalyptic literature. It's a style of speaking and writing. It's like poetry is a style or narrative is a style or persuasion is a style. Apocalyptic literature was very common to Jewish people. The book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah, the gospel of Matthew, certainly in some of the epistles, the book of Revelation, all of them have full, they're full of verses that are apocalyptic in style. Now, this type of language is full of symbolism. It should not always be read literally like you would read the news. And so these things that we read here, it's all vivid descriptions of the Lord's wrath, of the Lord's judgment. This is exactly what, if you want to write it down, that the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 13, he's talking about the kingdom of Babylon, and he's talking about God's judgment that's going to take place in the future on the Babylonian empire. And the language he uses is almost identical with what Jesus is using here. And he's saying this is God's judgment coming upon, upon these people, coming upon this place. And so Jesus is doing that same thing here. It's language his disciples would have understood. And then we come to that glorious verse, verse 30. And it says, and then after all of these horrendous things will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's almost identical to what the apostle John tells us in Revelation chapter one, verse seven. He says, behold, he, Jesus, the Messiah, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And this is the second point that Jesus makes as we work through these verses, that he is enthroned. He is coming again. The first time Jesus appeared on earth, the next time he will appear in heaven. The first time only a few welcomed him. The next time all the tribes of the earth will mourn. The first time he came humbly and lowly. Next time he will come with power and glory. We can't read this section of scripture and yawn. You have to let the reality of this penetrate your heart deeply. The world will mourn, it says, because the world does not know him, and his return means their judgment. I'm sure many of you have seen the movie at some time in the past, Schindler's List. It takes place during World War II and follows the story of a businessman named Oscar Schindler who had a change of heart and began saving the lives of Jews. When Oscar realized that genocide was happening, he began to scheme ways to basically buy the Jews from Hitler 
and send them to his factory so that they would not be captured and sent to concentration camps. At the end of the movie, some of the 1,100 Jews he saved are thanking him for saving their lives. They give him a ring, and it says in Hebrew from the Talmud, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And he begins to think about what more he could have done. And he says, I I could have got more out if I had made more money. I threw away so much money, you have no idea. And he looks at his car and he says, this car, why did I keep this car? Ten people right there. And then he takes a gold pin that he wears on his suit and says, this pin would have been two people, at least one, one person. He would have given me one, one more, one more person. And as he reflects on what's happened and the massive loss of human life, he breaks down and weeps. Friends, I don't, I'll just speak for myself, I do not ache. I don't ache enough over the reality that the return of our king means the destruction and judgment for all on earth who don't know him, who didn't follow him, who didn't put their faith in him. The living and the dead will stand in judgment. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Can you, can you picture their faces, billions of faces? Can you comprehend the sheer scale of the horror of what Jesus is saying here, of the mourning, of the loss? When Paul thought about his own people, his fellow Israelites' refusal to receive the Messiah, he he agonized over it. It says in Romans chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ, For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying, if I could give up my own salvation for the sake of my people who refuse to turn to Jesus, I would do it. But he couldn't do it. So he did what he could do. He labored night and day, hunger and danger. He endured through betrayal and torture and prison so that both his own people, the Jews, and all people, the Gentiles, would hear of the name of Christ and have the opportunity to surrender to him. God desires, he makes it clear in scripture, he desires that all people will be saved. But there are billions who are unwilling. That should deeply bother me. That should deeply bother you. This should affect us. We should mourn all the people who stand guilty before Christ and will stand guilty before him in their sin. It ought to drive us to our knees so that we would beg God to open their eyes and open their ears to the truth of the gospel. See, and while we know it's God's work, It really is. It's God's work. It's not us. We must remember that although it's him who transforms the soul, it is us he calls to do this work. What are you doing? How have you spent your time? What I've been thinking about this week is that we need to stop, if I could just challenge all of us for a moment, we need to stop our useless arguments and petty social media fights about every useless cultural and political issue and get on with our mission of actually making disciples of Christ. I mean, just this last week, I'm watching a thread full of Woodside people. 
And here's the thread, straight down. And here's one of our staff members throwing out a meme. Somebody sitting back on a couch, tossing popcorn in their mouth. Watching the movie unfold as the brothers and sisters in Christ fight over all kinds of issues, all of them secondary, none of them having to do with the gospel itself, all of them having to do with this issue, that political issue, this issue, this race issue, all the arguments that are dividing the church and the world's looking at and saying, what are you guys really all about? Well, the point is we will be known by our love for one another, and when we make secondary things primary things, then the primary thing gets lost. The primary thing is the gospel. It is our unity on who Jesus is, that he lived, that he died, that he rose, that he's coming, and when he comes, he will come in judgment for all who have not believed. Do their souls keep you up at night? Do you get as passionate about that as you do about all these other things? This is our business. This is our task. This is our Mission to proclaim the good news of Christ to all who would listen. And in the midst of this, we should encourage one another because it's not all bad news, of course. There's hope in our faith. That's why it's called good news. There's deliverance from judgment. Look at verse 31. It says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, is it possible to live lives that are full of sorrow and also full of joy. I think it is. I think we can. That's how Paul lived. That's what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 8, we are treated as impostors, sorrow, and yet are true, joy, as unknown, sorrow, and yet well-known, joy, as dying, sorrow, and behold, we live, joy, as punished, sorrow, and, yet not, and not yet killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. So the good news is that when Jesus appears in all of his power and with all of his great glory, we, his elect, his chosen, those who have chosen him, chosen him through faith, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the world. That means the gospel has gone global. The gospel is global. And when the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the world, Jesus will return, the world will be sifted, and our salvation will be completed. This is what Jesus talks about in the parable of the weeds. He says in Matthew 13, several chapters before, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the master said, verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn, into his home, into his kingdom, into his heaven. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. He's referring to the same event. 
They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Jesus says that there will be a great sifting. It will be horrifying for those who have rejected the good news. But for the elect, a day is coming when the prayer that Jesus put on our lips, when he said, our Father who is in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when that prayer will be fully realized. So we have joy about that moment because there will be no more imposters, no more pornography, no more children sold into the sex trade, no more racially motivated crimes, no more money wasted and stored where moth and rust destroy. So let me go back to our question. What now? Everything is different. What do I do now? What do we do now? We must rely on Jesus' unchanging word. Look at how he closes this section, verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, and all these things I believe he's referring to verses 4 through 28, everything he described, kingdom against kingdom, nation against nation, all these things, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. Underline it, circle it, but my words will not pass away. All the things he's been describing would happen within the lifetime of his followers. Within a generation that he was speaking to, he says, truly I say to you here, this generation, this generation, those who he's speaking to will not pass away until all these things take place. But that doesn't mean that they would cease to happen after that generation, only that they would happen within that generation and then continue. The point is the birth pains were intense right after the church was launched in Jerusalem. The great distress and destruction of Jerusalem, uh, certainly talked about here by Jesus, happened and we see that within the history of, uh, of the church. And yet this same pattern of distress and softening, distress and softening, intensity increasing, this still continues to our day. So the question for you is, whose words do you really believe? Whose words are you really going to listen to? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do you believe him? Do you believe the words of Jesus? Do you believe that after the birth pains, a new world will emerge glorious in a way that we could never imagine? Now, I believe because of the way you guys just sang before I came up here to speak that so many of you, I'm sure online, I'm sure in the room would say, yes, amen. That's why I sang with such passion. I believe he's coming again. I know where my home is, but there are so many who don't. They are the souls we must work to win. Let me close with the words of Christ and a few comments here. He says in Matthew 19, listen to him. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit 
eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do you believe him? Maybe you're asking the questions in your own heart about where you've been. Maybe you're filled even regret with some regret this morning or conviction of what you've done or not done, how you've lived or not lived. Let me remind you of another quote of C.S. Lewis. He says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. You can't see it, but God already knows the end of your script. You might not see it, but God already knows what's going to happen. And so here's what he's asking us to do today. Here's the application. He's saying, you know, you can't see the end. I see the end. You can't see the end. We can't change what's behind. We can move ahead. So just take one step of faith. Take a second step of faith. Then take another step of faith and choose to walk in step with my spirit. Have my courage, have my strength, go and tell, go and proclaim, make my gospel your priority. I've given you everything you need. Just take a step, then take another step. And you might not be able to see all of them, but just keep taking steps. What do we do now? What do we do next? I don't know what to do. Take a step of faith. Listen to his words. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this powerful text that you've given us through your son. And Father, in this moment, I wanna give all those who are watching, all those who are here an opportunity, Father, to respond to the gospel of Christ. That they would have heard clearly today, Lord, that there is a day coming where your son will return and he will return in great power and glory. And Father, if we have not confessed him as our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, the one who is in charge of our lives, where we've submitted our lives to him, we've trusted in the work of his death, we've believed in the truth of his resurrection, we've trusted in his words that are unchanging from now to the end. Father, for all those who want to take that step, that first step of faith, even now, would you just encourage them to have the courage to write online, just, I need to connect with somebody. Tell me more. Let me respond to Jesus. Let me know that my soul will be forever saved. For all those in the room, Father, that they would respond in their heart, that they would lift up a word of prayer to you, knowing that you hear it, prayer of salvation, offering their life to you, saying, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. And Father, for all of us who have made that claim of faith, help us to mourn the faces, the nations, the people who need to know you here in our community around the world. Give us a burden for them and help us to put aside all of our petty differences to move forward on mission as your church, your bride. We need you. Father, we know that we have been saved by your amazing grace. It is a sweet sound. We want to share it with others. We receive it now. We give you all the glory for what you will do. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond together. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.